welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In our first segment today, we're talking to Rebecca Nahara, who uncovered some startling data that affects Oklahoma tenants. Rebecca, the federal moratorium on evictions came to an end September 1st, and your story identified that a lot of money meant for rental assistance still hasn't made it to the people it's supposed to help. What did you find? So the state of Oklahoma received about $310 million in emergency rental assistance funds, and only 17.4% of that money has been dispersed. Um, Community Cares Partners is an organization that was created specifically for um, getting this money out to people who need it. Um, And so far, only $52 million has gone out to help families, and that's about 12,000 households. Um, But they have a backlog of 13,000 applications. So they have temporarily closed their applications to catch up and hopefully make the approval uh, wait period. Um, a lot faster than what it is right now, which is six to eight weeks. Um, Restore Hope is another organization who is keeping their applications open, who helps um, a 20-county area in northeast Oklahoma. And so far, they have a 9,000 to 10,000 uh, application back backlog right now. Uh, wow, that's a lot of people waiting for some help. Um, how does all of that affect the landlords? I, mean, I would guess that they'd rather have their tenants get the aid money and be able to pay their rent, right, than have to uh, go through a bunch of evictions. So is, you know, the landlords waiting to see that money hit their checking accounts? You know, some are, some aren't. Um, What the organizations have suggested to tenants, um, if they're served an eviction notice, is to notify the landlord, like, hey, I am waiting on this approval. Um, This is the organization I applied with. And they can contact the organization and they can um, kind of expedite that process to help the landlords get the money faster, help the tenants keep their homes. So um, who's eligible for that assistance um, and how do they go about getting it? So applications are available online um, for both organizations. And if you're not tech savvy or, you know, you just kind of need that face-to-face interaction for help, uh, Community Cares Partners does do um these things called station applications where they go around the state and they meet with people face-to-face to help them get through that application process. So if you were furloughed or lost your job after March 13th, 2020, um, you qualify, or if you've lost majority of your income or you've just acquired debt, um, they really work with tenants to help them get approved. And when you were out reporting this topic, because you did an earlier story on uh, the evictions moratorium as well. And when you were out just talking to tenants and uh, to some of the landlords, especially the ones with big apartment complexes, um, what was their situation? Are are these people who um, have been out of work and have piled up lots and lots and lots of past due rent, or are they just a month or two behind and and ready to go back to their jobs? Did you see any patterns? Um, It kind of just varies. Some people just don't know that help is out there and they don't know how to find it. Um, There are some people, um, for example, I talked to someone who was on disability um, and she ran out of her disability fund. She was no longer getting it. So she was starting to fall behind her and her partner. Um, And, you know, some people are going back to work. It's just some people get by paycheck to paycheck. So they can never catch up on the rent that they did fall behind on. So this assistance also helps them there as well. 
Right. So if you're six months behind and you've just gone back to a low wage job, you may have a really hard time coming up with five months of past due rent, right? Right. Have have the landlords been, um, you know, fairly flexible about that? Are they willing to work with people? I'm sure it's different from one to another, but did you see any patterns there? Uh, usually, yeah, landlords are willing to help um, as long as they contact these organizations. If they know that money is coming, if they know that they're going to be approved, they're usually pretty, pretty open and like patient when it comes to that. So communication, probably a big a big part of the puzzle for that, right? Absolutely. I got it. Makes sense. Okay, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. Listeners can read all the details about assistance and avoiding eviction in Rebecca's story, which is available on oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer is Oklahoma Watch's education reporter, and as you can imagine, she's been hearing a lot about masks in schools lately. Jennifer, welcome to Long Story Short. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, Judge Natalie Mai ruled that the state can't prevent schools from requiring masks. Is that right? That's right, at least temporarily. Uh, And with one exception, Mai issued a temporary injunction, which puts the law on hold. And the State Department of Education has now said that they won't enforce the law um, while the case is going on. So schools can require masks for now as long as they allow students and parents to opt out, which is what we've seen in some districts like Oklahoma City Public Schools and Santa Fe South. How how does that opt-out provision work? What do parents have to do? So in most of the districts that I've looked at, it's a form that you fill out, and you can check whether you're opting out for personal, for medical, or for religious reasons. And it mirrors our state's um, school vaccination law, um, not COVID vaccinations, but for other uh, childhood illnesses that are, are required, students or yeah, parents can opt their students out of those as well. So, it, talk about that a little bit more. If it's a, um, if parents can can opt out of the program by saying, you know, I don't want to do it on a form, uh, doesn't that just undermine the whole program? I mean, if the the objective is to get everybody to wear masks. Um, and half the families opt out, what happens? Well, we haven't seen half the families opt out. Um, KGOU has actually done some good reporting on this. And that what they've seen is in the districts that have since passed a mask mandate or some of the earlier adopters like Oklahoma City Public Schools, only about 1%, um, sometimes up to 3% of students have opted out. And it kind of, um, it makes mask wearing the norm as opposed to the exception. So it just kind of flips that expectation around. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, in in Edmond, for example, where there are a lot of positive cases uh, all at once, right at the, right at the start of school, um, district, uh, that district started mandating masks right after the kids came back to school after Labor Day weekend. Has that been typical of districts or uh, how's that playing out around the state? Yeah, Edmonds actually at one point had, you know, almost 400 students who were positive for COVID and 3,000 in quarantine. Um, We have seen a few districts that have passed a mask mandate since the law was put on hold. Not very many, but, uh, you know, some like Yukon, Noble, Briggs, there will probably be more. I know some districts were having um, board meetings this week and had that on their agenda. So I expect we'll see a few more. For what about private schools, uh, parochial schools, Christian schools? 
did the law even affect them in the first place? And uh, what happens to them now? What, how does this change things for them? So in the beginning, um, private schools were not included in the law. And that was a thing that the judge really pointed out. Um, that was a major reason for her decision. In fact, she said the only reason was that the law only applied to students in public schools and not private schools. And she felt like this type of health uh, law should apply to all students who are compelled to go to school. So not college students, but any you know K-12 student. So in the beginning, when the law was in place, private schools did pass mass mandates. We saw you know quite a few. And now that the law's on hold, really nothing has changed for private schools. Uh, this is a temporary injunction. So when does it come to an end and how does that come about? So what will happen next is the um, a new judge actually will take on this case. Judge Mai handled it um, just temporarily. And her temporary injunction will stay in place until a full hearing can be held. I expect that to get scheduled this week. And I don't know exactly when that will be, but it should be soon. All right, Jennifer, thank you for being here. Listeners can read the full story at oklahomawatch.org. Some 120,000 people were flown from Afghanistan as the U.S. withdrew troops in late August. And reporter Lionel Ramos looked into the possibility of Afghan refugees settling in Oklahoma. Welcome, Lionel. Hi. Tell us about the process. How might it come to pass that some of those people fleeing Afghanistan could end up here in Oklahoma? Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to say that at this point, it seems more like a question of when Afghan refugees will arrive in Oklahoma rather than if. Uh, but the initial possibility arose from a few different factors. Uh, the sheer number of refugees being flown out of Afghanistan in the first place is a huge one. Like you said, some 120,000. Governor Kevin Stitt's open willingness to receive refugees in the state was another big factor. And then again, the historic success Oklahoma has seen in the past with refugee resettlement operations from Vietnam, um, Iraq, Syria, and even Afghanistan 20 years ago when the Taliban first held control of the country. All right, so Oklahoma's got a little experience in this, right? It's not a, a brand new thing we would be doing, okay? Um, how, tell me a little about the process. How, how is it decided and, and who's in charge of helping those people who might end up here? Sure. So it's important to know that the, the process of resettling refugees in the United States starts abroad in a refugee's native country or a country nearby theirs um, where they apply to be designated as refugees um, through the U.S. State Department. And then through there, they're kind of directed through a long bureaucratic process that typically takes a few years um, before they are actually physically brought to the U.S. and uh, referred to a resettlement and placement organization. Um, for those coming to Oklahoma, that organization would be the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, who has local affiliates here in Oklahoma in the form of Catholic Charities, Archdiocese OKC, and the uh, branch in Tulsa as well. So once they, uh, once the refugees get connected with Catholic Charities, um, whether it's here in, in Oklahoma City or in Tulsa, they are, uh, well, it's actually Catholic Charities that is responsible for 
for that whole that whole process, providing them with resources like uh, housing once they get here, um, enrollment in school for children, um, English classes, and uh, employment services, training, and things like that. I imagine Oklahoma is not alone in welcoming Afghan refugees right now, or a lot of other states opening their doors? Uh, Oklahoma is not alone. There are a total of, of 37 governors that have vocally expressed an interest or willingness in receiving Afghan refugees. Um, that's according to a HuffPost analysis uh, published uh, late last month in August. Um, there are two states, Wyoming and South Dakota, that have flat out refused to take in refugees, citing a potential exacerbation of the immigration crisis in the U.S., and 11 states that haven't commented uh, publicly, and, and we just don't know whether they support it or not. But uh, there are a good number of states that are ready to receive people from Afghanistan. Yeah, there was a lot of contentiousness here in Oklahoma a few years ago um, when it came to Muslims, and there was a lot of fear and misunderstanding about Sharia law. Are there concerns that this could go badly in Oklahoma? There are not concerns of anything going quote-unquote, badly when it comes to the resettlement of refugees in the state. There are some community leaders like Dr. Imad Nchasi from the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City and Adam Sultani the, of uh, the OKC chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations who have said they've seen an uptick in hateful rhetoric, um, hate mail to their organizations, to them personally. Um, but on the flip side of that, They've also seen a lot of support from the Muslim community and people that are not Muslim in Oklahoma that are just ready to, to lend a hand anywhere they can. Okay, good to know. For more about the Afghan resettlement in Oklahoma, be sure to read Lionel's story at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.